I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded in 2019. And we welcome you to the morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On several previous occasions, I've had the pleasure of sitting opposite my morning show guest today, a faculty colleague from Carthage, uh, Dr. Kevin Crosby, a professor of, of physics and astronomy, and uh, someone who has been involved in some very, very exciting projects uh, with Carthage students, and many of those projects directly linked with NASA. And uh, some very exciting new uh, events and, and accomplishments have occurred uh, over the last few months that uh, are really worth talking about. So I appreciate uh, Professor Crosby taking the time out of his busy schedule to come to the morning show and uh, and uh, enlighten us on uh, some of what his uh, he and his students have been working on in conjunction with NASA and something called the Artemis Project, which could very possibly bring humankind back to the moon. Professor Kevin Crosby, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we've had some uh, great conversations over the past uh, past few years, and I always appreciate your ability to talk about complicated things in relatively simple fashion. So those of us not uh, in the know kind of are in the know by the time we're done. So <laughs> thanks for your ability to uh, to make things simple and clear for, for, for the rest of us. First of all, uh, Maybe you could give us just kind of a sense uh, in a real big, broad sort of picture, the kind of work that Carthage over the years has been doing in conjunction with uh, the space program. And then we'll get into some of these uh, more recent events and those specifics. Well, I think like like all good projects, it really began with students about 15 years ago when, when I had students who had the audacious idea to actually propose to a NASA program a student uh, competition. And lo and behold, they their their proposal, which despite my cynicism was <laughs> was accepted, and and we flew our first parabolic flight campaign um, shortly after that in 2008. These are flights that take a roller coaster path in the sky and provide you a little bit of uh, microgravity time. So we were able to work with a colleague at a at a. Uh, NASA Center to test a technology that he had developed, and and uh, we took it from there and started advancing those kinds of uh, technologies that NASA centers may not have the time or the resources to support, but are nonetheless important to to the overall mission. And selected projects each year that we thought we could have a we could make a contribution to, and it's kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, I guess so. So, how many times would you say over these uh, intervening years? Have you actually had the opportunity to take students someplace where they are, in a sense, interacting with NASA and contributing to what NASA is doing? I'd say, well, I can tell you for sure. It's it's every year for the last 11 years, at least twice a year for the last six. And if you include some of the suborbital launches we do, it's probably three to four times a year that we have some significant project that's going into space or going into a, a parabolic flight campaign. Amazing. And I should think that that's not commonplace for, especially for a school as small as Carthage, uh, to be a player uh, in this respect. Uh, for me, that's the, I think that's the most gratifying part. It's really, it, it is exciting. And in the early days, we would, of course, have to explain who we were and, and where we were from, and nobody had ever heard of Carthage. And as the years progressed, it, it's become more of a normal thing. We're, it's a, it's a still a fairly small research community that does so-called suborbital, which is where you go up and you come back down. 
or you do parabolic flights, which is where you do the same thing, but it, within the atmosphere. Um, it's a relatively small community of researchers, and it's it's gratifying to see that we're we've been a, a long-standing member of that community for many years now. Well, and I think the part that's still kind of hard to grasp is the idea of Carthage students, students from little old Carthage College, are actually contributing to this research effort. I mean, doing meaningful research that is contributing to what NASA needs to know. Uh, and I think that's that's the part that's still kind of maybe most amazing to me. Maybe you could explain a little further why it's even necessary for in, for, in a sense, the research of, of, of college students to be kind of part of the equation. Sure. I, th- I think it, it takes a village is the, is the real story <laughs> here because there is just so much work to do. And a single agency um, like NASA, as vast and, and, um, and sophisticated as it is, getting to the moon and doing it in a way that is uh, you know, safe to the very last decimal place, we really want to ensure safety. It is not a simple task. And the number of organizations, institutions, schools, uh, companies that are involved in, in the effort is just staggering. And there's always a little knothole somewhere where, where um, individuals can contribute. And I think NASA has really uh, embraced the idea of kind of crowdsourcing these, these larger missions. And we, we have a role in this, and that role has, has grown over time as we've been able to demonstrate value to, to the agency. Well, I know that one of the things you are most excited to talk about is uh, the most recent and what really is a series of significant grants that have been given to uh, the program at at Carthage. Uh, first of all, explain where these grants come from and, and, and their significance. The, the grants come from NASA, and within NASA, there are uh, NASA's divided by directorates. So there are several directorates. The one that uh, we work with most directly is called the Space Technology Mission Directorate, or STMD. And there's some overlap with the Science Mission Directorate because our our projects are are related to both technology and science, um, as all good projects are. So there's a little bit of engineering, but there's there's also a little bit of fundamental science involved. Within the STMD, the Science Technology Mission Directorate, there's a funding uh, program called Flight Opportunities, and this is where uh, colleges, universities, and companies um, can propose to fly technologies that are sort of in the early stages of development. We call it early TRL, early technology readiness level, which is a metric that NASA uses to assess um, the the types of technologies that we fly. So we're early early to mid-TRL at this point. Um, flying on both suborbital rockets that are provided by commercial launch companies like Blue Origin, um, Exosair. There are several uh, launch providers, but the ones that we've been working with are primarily Blue Origin. And the parabolic flight providers. These are uh, There's only one in the country. It's called Zero-G. Their main business is space tourism. Um, they provide tourists with uh, parabolas, so 30-second experiences of zero gravity, where the plane is actually kind of falling ballistically in roller coasters in, you know, in, the, in the sky out over the Gulf of Mexico. So just a regular person with enough money can exactly. buy a ticket yeah. to experience that just for the thrill of it. 
Yep, and that's their main business. But on at least two or three times a year, this company strips out all of the uh, all of the padding in the aircraft that they use for the tourists, and they put in the you know we bolt in our experiments, and there are about ten universities that will typically fly in a given flight, and we'll we'll spend a week down in Florida with ten universities, companies, and and other uh, in parties. Um, with experiments bolted onto the cra- onto the deck of this uh, 727 that has been stripped of everything but the last few rows of seats. And we have this long stretch of the cabin that we can use to um, perform our experiments. And we do that over the course of about 40 parabolas per flight and multiplied by four flights per week, typically. And, and so that's a, a way for you to see how your particular device or whatever it happens to be how it performs exactly sort of in in, yeah. in real life yeah versus in 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 some sort of laboratory simulation right some people think well you're you're going into a, a room that simulates the experience of being in space or simulates microgravity but no this is truly microgravity this is the the aircraft is doing exactly what a spacecraft does it's orbiting the earth it's just that in the case of the aircraft the orbit unfortunately, intersects the Earth, which is not good for airplanes to do. So before that happens, the plane will pull out of that dive and scream up to the top of the atmosphere and do it again. So we do about 40 of these um, ballistic parabolas in a, in a given flight, which is about as far as you can go on that. And so in, and so in, in those moments, then, there, it is authentic zero gravity that's being experienced and Absolutely. Can, and then you can really right. study what's going on. So, for instance, a company like Blue Origin that is a commercial venture, uh, I assume they're not doing this just out of the goodness of their hearts. I mean, are you are in a sense you purchasing a ticket just like a tourist? Exactly. Would? Right. Yeah, the business model is that Blue Origin, like Zero-G and like many of the other emerging space companies, wants to sell their rides to um, ultimately consumers at – you know, probably something like quarter million dollars a ticket. They've got wow. a crew capsule that any day now will fly the first uh, commercial tourists in a suborbital flight. And eventually the cost will come down. But while they're pursuing that business model, what they're also doing is in parallel, they have a um, a program where you can, instead of filling that crew capsule with, with tourists, you can fill it with payloads or experiments. And what we do is we essentially buy a ticket on that by getting uh, research grants from NASA to support those launch costs. Hmm. And so uh, when a flight like that is taken, I assume that not just the device is going up, but somebody is going up with it to observe it firsthand? Or is the observation done somehow by relay from the ground? Well, in the in the case of the parabolic flights, you, you, the researchers do get to go, which is why I, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for getting uh, students particularly excited about space because they they design the experiments, they fly them, they're on board the aircraft, they're experiencing that um, microgravity, and it's a you know it's a, a wonderful way to s- kind of cement that love of of uh, engineering and science because there's nothing more exciting than than getting to fly your experiment. In the case of the suborbital um, flights where we're flying with Blue Origin and they're going into space and they're spending about five minutes on this uh, parabolic trajectory and then coming back down. Those are are at this point what we say uncrewed, so that the, the, we're building these. We, I call them space robots. These are experiments that have to do everything from turn on, power themselves, take the data, experience, and control the response to the launch 
um, accelerations and vibrations and, you know, shut down gracefully. So these are sophisticated robots where you have, uh, you know, you have one shot at it. If you, if you blow it, you've, you've wasted $200,000 of taxpayer money because you <laughs> so it's a it's kind of a high stakes game for undergrads to be involved in and and for that reason I think it's a real it's a it's a it's an excellent learning experience so uh you were just someplace for a launch correct correct yeah now what kind of a launch was that that just occurred so last week we were in uh, very far west Texas. It's beautiful out there, and what used to be, you know, several hundred million years ago, sort of the Great Western Ocean. So the, this is a, a flat um, valley between various mountain ranges, including the highest peak in Texas, and it's just beautiful. But it's also desolate, and it's desolate to the point where you can launch rockets and recover them without concern that if something goes wrong, uh, humans might be impacted. So Just a cactus or two. <laughs> just maybe. a cactus or two and a roadrunner here and there. But <laughs> Jeff Bezos, who uh, is, of course, the founder of Amazon, his main passion is is getting people into space and, and expanding human presence in, in, across the, the solar system. And so he has built, to the tune of about a billion dollars a year of his of his wealth, he's he's invested in his company called Blue Origin, and this is a company that um, provides ultimately will provide space tourism to consumers, but right now provides uh, a ride for NASA payloads. And so this is the second time we've been out to West Texas to uh, launch on what they call the New Shepard, named after Alan Shepard. It's the it's their their main um, suborbital vehicle at the moment. Okay, so the first. First American astronaut in space who achieved suborbital flight, I think, back in 1961, mm-hmm. and eventually returned right. uh, to NASA and got on the moon, actually, I think, in Apollo 15, maybe. Uh, so this is named after him. Correct. And cool. their, their orbital vehicle is called New Glenn, named after John Glenn. Ah. That's being built out at uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The first astronaut to achieve Orbital flight. Very mm-hmm. good. So uh, was this something where just a machine was sent up, or were there students sent up with it? Uh, at this point, NASA does not permit crewed experiments on suborbital flights. So there were no humans on, on this. In fact, there have been no humans on any space vehicle of American origin mm-hmm. since the shuttle program ended. So, okay. um, but, but we're hoping, and the, the research community is, is working with NASA and other um, regulators, the FAA and so forth, to, to hopefully one day have humans attend these experiments because a lot of experiments you can't really do robotically. You need to mm. be there to interact directly with the with the technology. Very good. So you were on hand at least for the launch to right. see this go up. Yeah, this very exciting. Yeah. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today with Dr. Kevin Crosby, professor of physics and astronomy at Carthage College, director of the Wisconsin Space Grant Consortium, and we're talking about uh, uh, a couple of very, very exciting uh, new accomplishments by uh, the the students uh, under his direction at at Carthage uh, in their uh, ongoing interaction uh, with with NASA. Professor Crosby, I was just reading uh, through your biography that you were on leave 2018 through 2019, on leave from Carthage, correct? Correct, yeah. Uh, to serve as, uh, if I have it correctly, a senior scientist at NASA's uh, uh, Kennedy Space Center. Uh, so just uh, say a word about what that year was like and the kind of things you were doing, and if the work of Carthage students was 
ongoing even in your absence from Carthage. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the students were involved. And it's uh, one of the benefits of being a uh, academic is to occasionally have the opportunity to take a sabbatical. And so after 20, 21 years of teaching at Carthage and 25 years of teaching uh, myself overall, I took my first sabbatical. So it was very <laughs> exciting for me to be be away for a little bit. And I spent um, the first summer working at Kennedy Space Center, advancing some of the ideas that you know are related to this gateway Lunar Gateway grant that we're talking about here, in particular on the modal propellant gauging project. So I spent a uh, summer working with my colleague there at Kennedy Space Center, who's who's really the uh, the the generator of this original concept. And so we worked together for about four months, and then I moved to Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, where the human spaceflight operations are centered, and spent nine months there, essentially the academic year, um, again, working primarily on modal propellant gauging, and then came back the following summer, last summer, back to Kennedy, where I, I typically spend my summers working on the modal propellant gauging project. Terrific. So. Students were involved all the way across because I had students, student interns from Carthage uh, come out with me, uh, two students from Carthage and one from Purdue, uh, come out with me um, to Kennedy for the last summer. Very good. I know we had a conversation, it feels like several years ago, uh, about this thing called MPG, modal propellant gauging, and... Uh, I think it's a topic that's really central to a lot of the work that you're doing, and it's worth our talking about it again. Um, so first of all, explain kind of the essential need that this addresses, that is that central need to be able to gauge how much fuel you have in, in, a, in a certain kind of flight. Explain, first of all, in a sense the sort of problem that exists that this seeks to solve. Yeah, I think the, pro- the problem we can talk about in terms of maybe the most familiar example is in 1969 when, when Neil Armstrong was trying to land that uh, command module, or to, I'm sorry, to land the, the, the eagle on the surface of the moon. And as they're looking for a clear space, alarms kept going off indicating that they were you know, within 30 seconds of having to abort the landing because the fuel level levels were so low. Right. They wouldn't have enough fuel to, I mean, they'd have enough fuel to land, but they wouldn't have enough fuel to launch off again. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so. it, was, it's, it was a very tense moment. And that moment has been repeated uh, periodically throughout the Apollo program. And I think Neil Armstrong and others at that time knew that the, while the alarm was going off, it didn't necessarily mean that they actually had low fuel levels because those alarms were known and were predicted to have essentially no value. <laughs> the, the fuel gauging mechanisms were not accurate when the, when the propellant gets down low enough. So and, the, and can you just explain why? Is there a reason why those fuel gauges were in a sense, insufficient for the task at hand? I mean, wh- why were they so unreliable? Yeah, it's a funny thing. You'd think we can all get in our cars and be fairly convinced that the the dial reads the correct amount of fuel or tells you when you're getting low enough that you need to get to a gas station. Yeah, and that doesn't seem like doesn't a doesn't seem like a challenge. hard problem. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and, and it isn't on Earth when your fuel generally goes to the bottom of the tank and stays there. I mean, we don't have fuel flying up and circulating around the, the tubing and getting stuck in the crevices at the top of the tank, and which is exactly what happens to fluids of any kind, liquids in particular, in, lo, in low gravity, um, which is what we had as we were coming down on the moon. The moon's gravity is only a sixth of what it is on the Earth. And in space, of course, it's zero. So in zero gravity, liquids behave kind of like, it's kind of like herding cats. They will find every crevice of, a, of the container in which they're, they're present and, and kind of stick to that crevice, whether there is no up, down, or sideways in space. So mm. they'll go everywhere. And predicting and understanding the behavior of liquids is, is uh, very challenging. And it's, it's a challenge that's been ongoing since, you know, since the early 60s. So we think we have a way to get around that challenge of understanding where the liquids are um, with our modal propellant gauging project. But the, you know, the real issue, aside from um, crew safety on these long-duration missions, is also the economics of the satellite industry. Right now, there are billions of dollars of assets in space in what we call geosynchronous orbit, which is where they can stare down on a particular point on the surface of the Earth and just continue to look down on that point. So this would be cable TV, Mm. weather satellites, communication satellites of all kinds. And these are expensive assets. And when they run out of fuel, they're done. And the the current standard is that they need to retain at least six months of additional fuel um, before they get, you know, by the time they're they're uh, dispositioned to a graveyard orbit, essentially retired, they need to have no less than six months of fuel remaining. And that's because of the gauging errors, the uncertainty in how much fuel is in that tank. Wow. So they have to have a lot more fuel than they actually need right. in order to have that margin of safety. In right. Sense. And that margin of safety translates into, across the industry, um, more than a billion-dollar problem. And so this is a, a problem of some interest to the satellite industry as well as to crew safety for long-duration human presence in space. Wow. So this, this notion of developing a new way to measure fuel more accurately in space uh, and the model that you are going after called the Modal Propellant Gauging System, or MPG. Did I hear you correctly earlier in the interview that somebody came up with this concept? I feel like you Absolutely, said the name of yeah. somebody. So my, my colleague at, at Kennedy Space Center, Rudy Werlink, who had been working for years in something called tank health monitoring, and um, where he was applying these this principle of modal um, modal analysis, which is a standard technique in engineering to sort of listen to the materials. It's an acoustic technique that listens to the to the materials and one can hear things like cracking or slipping or stress or strain. And he'd been applying that to uh, tank health monitoring for many years. And it was his idea to translate that approach to uh, determining how much fuel is in the tank. And this is something NASA had been interested in for quite a while. So um, but we, you know, together, um, starting in about 2011, we worked out the, my contribution was really sort of the mathematical end of it and working out exactly how that would, would happen. But it was really his idea to, to uh, apply this technique to fuel gauging. So I, I, I want to make sure I understand this. So are you saying it's, it's a matter of, at least in the roughest terms, of sound? 
Very much uh, so. so, so yeah. it's, it's almost like if you, you had a barrel of something and you knock on it and you can just kind of tell by the pitch of the knock how full or how empty this It's almost thing. just like that, right? Yeah, it's wow. kind of like rubbing your finger on a wine glass at different fill levels. You can hear that pitch. We're, we're actually listening to different waves. We're listening to the surface waves on the tank rather than the air volume um, that's excited when you kind of run your finger along the rim of a wine glass. But it's the same basic idea. We're using acoustic... Um, we're using... A, uh, acoustic waves to monitor the... the uh, thickness of the fluid layer that gets stuck to the side of the tank wall in zero gravity. So this is a natively zero-G approach. We can we can hear the difference between one inch of fluid stuck to the wall and 1.1 inches of fluid stuck to the wall. Wow. I always say I can, I can tell the difference. If you take a tablespoon out of a two-gallon uh, tank, I can hear the difference in the acoustic uh, signature of it. Interesting. But training computers to, to listen for that and understand it is the real trick. Ah, okay. And and are we talking then about primarily a difference in pitch, or are there other qualities of the sound that change depending on how much fuel is in a given tank? There, yeah. The, as it turns out, the um, pitch is in, insufficient. We can't, that's not enough information to tell how much is in the tank. So we're we're looking at the shape and the quality of uh, the shape and other parameters of this modal response and trying to do it in in an automated way that computers can achieve in in the small volumes and small uh, hardware that you can actually fly on a spacecraft the kinds of computing power you have on spacecraft is much reduced relative to what we have on our desktops so while i can do this on a laptop computer in a fraction of a second to translate that into something that's going to be radiation hardened and have flight heritage and meet all of the safety requirements of of a spacecraft computer is is a bit of a challenge right when was this basic idea first developed by this gentleman at NASA? I mean, when did he first come up with the idea that this might be the key to being able to accurately gauge propellant level in space? I think he he had the idea probably around 2009, 2010, and, and um, I got involved around 2011, and we've been collaborating on it since. Hmm. So in working on this, this is probably, <laughs> this will probably be the most challenging moment for you in this whole interview, is I would love for you to try to explain to us, uh, those of us on the outside looking in, the kind of work that has been done over the last 10 years. And that, for instance, when you have Carthage students working on this to try to advance its, its level of accuracy and workability or whatever... What kinds of things are you doing? What kinds of things are you working on to try to advance the needle in this particular technology? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. We've, we've tried to advance the needle along two main fronts. One has been developing um, flight experiments that we can fly scale model tanks, small tanks, um, providing them with small amounts of small times of zero gravity. So this has been the parabolic flight campaign. Um, aspect of the of the program, and that's really just designed to sort of answer the critics to say to show that this does work in in a space like environment, and that this technique really does work under all sorts of sloshing conditions. Because you can imagine in a spacecraft that fuel is just constantly moving. It's not you know it's not like the the gas at the bottom of the tank in your car it kind of sits there unless you hit a bump. This stuff is constantly swirling. 
um, mm. doesn't settle for, for weeks at a time. And so um, trying to understand those dynamics and, and model them and accurately assess their impact on our ability to gauge has, has been you know, part of the flight demonstration train. The other um, direction that the research has really taken me has, has been to put some real mathematics and some fundamental physics underneath what we're doing. And that's primarily been the effort over the last few years with my sabbatical at NASA, Johnson Space Center, and Kennedy has been to publish papers that, that demonstrate why this works, because they're not going to put it on a spacecraft unless it has some real uh, fundamental science underneath it, not just some demonstrations in space. Right. So how is it possible to work on this at a place like Carthage? I mean, when a student or when you are at Carthage, where are the arenas in which this work can still go on? I don't know that it would be possible to work on it in places other than Carthage. I mean, Carthage is the type of place that really does afford you the kind of autonomy of of um, being able to define what good undergraduate research looks like. I mean, you one at a at a larger university, this might fall between the cracks. It's not pure science, and it's not really new engineering. I mean, this is this is sort of a hybrid of mm. some fundamental science and some uh, technology development, and uh, you know, my colleagues and the students and the administrative support at Carthage doesn't really concern itself with those differences. And I think that's going to be the way a lot of programs have to move in the future as we as we start thinking about solving real human problems in, in, in engineering and science. We need to start thinking less about silos of, of disciplines and more about problem solving. Where, and where, wherever it takes us is fine. And this has taken us into some areas that, you know, could be sort of duct tape and chewing gum type space engineering. But also there's a lot of, of, of really beautiful mathematics that's emerged that has, has um, I think, intrigued some of us in the community. Hmm. So for students that are working on this, under what auspices are they working on it curricularly? I mean, is, is the work that physics student X is doing on this – part of a particular course, or is this work that is part of what their own senior thesis might be, or, I mean, or is this just something they're doing for the for the excitement and fulfillment of it, in the sense, outside of their regular classwork? <laughs> yeah, the answer is yes to all of the above. It's, <laughs> okay. uh, well, it's been a course, uh, at one point I taught a course called Microgravity Environments. It's also been primarily sort of a extracurricular kind of club activity where you, know, you occasionally find four or five students who are just passionate about space and about um, technology development. And they'll, you know, the, you talk to my students, they will tell you stories of hiding out in the labs late at night to avoid security because they're just so focused on finishing this this uh, analysis or developing or trying to figure out why this circuit doesn't work. And so they have found their own inner compass on this on this program and over 15 years I've seen them um, translate that passion into careers in in the industry and in in NASA and in related agencies as well so it's it's um, it finds its own level I think in terms of whether it's a course or not I mean I try not to be too prescriptive about it but that said the scale of what we're trying to do now with the Artemis program and the Lunar Gateway um, has demanded that we have a, a broader audience and spend a lot more time on it. So this spring I will be teaching a course 
that is really kind of a sneaky way to get them get more students involved in it. It's called uh, technical project management. So we're going to be really approaching this this uh, new grant from a, a very formal technical project management standpoint, bringing in a lot more students and really trying to see if we can uh, kind of professionalize the operation a little bit. Wow. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Crosby, professor of physics and astronomy at Carthage College, director of the Wisconsin Space Grant Consortium, talking about some of the incredibly exciting work that he and Carthage students are doing in conjunction with with NASA. Um, You've thrown out a couple of terms that I think are worth our exploring, uh, the Lunar Gateway Program and the Artemis Program. And I know the Artemis Program uh, has, has the ultimate goal of returning uh, human beings to the surface of the moon someday. Exactly, right. Uh, so ex- explain a little further about this program and the Lunar Gateway program. Are they, in a sense, one and the same, or is one part of the other? Exactly. One is part of the other. So the Artemis program is the uh, overarching umbrella term that applies to sort of NASA's effort to get, and not just NASA, really, the entire global community's effort to get people back on the moon. And you called this, I think, earlier a successor to the Apollo program. Right. In mythology, Apollo had a sister named Artemis. Uh-huh. So uh, Artemis is, is the name of the, of the, of the current program. And, and the administrator at NASA, uh, Jim Bridenstine, you can hear him repeat this line over and over in all of his public speeches. We're going to put the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon. Hmm. And that's part of it. But really, the, the, the big challenge is to do so in a sustainable way to make sure that we're not just putting people on the moon for a few days, look around, take some pictures, and come home, which is essentially what we did in in uh, the Apollo era, not to not to minim- minimize the amount of science that we got out of it. But the the real effort here is to is to start building towards a future where there is a sustained human presence on an, on another body. Hmm. So some kind of space station on the surface of the moon or orbiting the moon, perhaps. Uh, exactly, right. The immediate plan is for a small space station called the Lunar Gateway, or just at this point just Gateway, to be orbiting the moon um, in a very peculiar orbit that takes it uh, – it's very elliptical. So hmm. spends a little bit of time near the moon and a lot of time kind of far away from the moon. And that particular orbit is, has been designed that way for um, – for several reasons, most of which have to do with crew safety, um, the ability to get people on and off the moon and communicate with Earth and so forth. But really, it's a strange orbit. And this gateway space station will consist of several modules, and they will remain in orbit around the moon, serving as kind of a motel for astronauts just to hang out for a few days as they as they dock uh, from Earth and prepare to get down to the surface, sort of a staging area for doing science um, on the moon which is really the purpose of the whole mission, and, and a, a way to study, um, study that particular region of space, which is really understudied and under-explored, under, um, I would say, from a standpoint of ultimately getting to Mars, because this is a stepping stone to being on Mars. Hmm. So is the perfection of the MPG uh, program, this program for uh, measuring fuel, is this in a sense, all but essential to this Artemis effort? I mean, could you imagine us returning to the moon without having this particular technology perfected? That's the current debate within uh, NASA right now. And it's not, mm-hmm. not about MPG. It's about, I think, the consensus has emerged that to do 
the Gateway program and to do the Artemis program as it stands right now, there absolutely has to be a low-gravity propellant gauging approach. And we have to know more about how you transfer propellant in in space. Mm. All of these problems, which we never had to worry about in, in the Apollo era, because this was a short trip, different types of fuels, mm. uh, storable fuels, um, that's not going to be the case with the Artemis program. We're, in the Artemis program, there, there will be um, different fuels, so-called cryogenic fuels, things that are really, really, really cold. But space, while it is very cold, it is very, very hot in the sun. And when you put a cryogenic f- propellant on a spacecraft, it's going to boil away. And so being able to monitor, gauge, transfer, and, and control the positions of those fluids is essential. Mm. And so there has been a lot of interest in MPG and, and other, you know, we're not the only ones. There are several other programs that are trying to develop um, ways of gauging liquid propellant. And probably the answer is not one of them, but all of them. A combination of, mm-hmm. of something. I was going to ask you if there are other efforts underway uh, to try to come up with other solutions for how to to to, to measure more accurately uh, propellant, and I'd read that someplace that that one of the issues with the Artemis project is that we're talking about different kinds of propellants, different kinds of fuel that have never been used in space before, and so that makes all of this even trickier. I I should think. That's right. Yeah. Um, when you see the space shuttle launch in the old days, or you watch Saturn V launch, any any of our larger launch vehicles, they're always powered by cryogenic propellants in what we call the launch stage. So the big engines and the and the big propellant tanks, those are typically liquid hydrogen or liquid methane in SpaceX case, but um, and a, and a liquid oxygen carried along as the oxidizer. So these are cryogenic propellants. And historically, we've only used those for the launch stage. Once we get to the moon, um, we use what are called hypergolics, which are the kinds of propellants where the fuel and the oxygen come together and spontaneously produce thrust. And they work no matter what. Can't fail. Mm. No problem. Very easy. You can store them at room temperature. Um they degrade over time, but they're basically, aside from being horrendously toxic and horrible if you breathe in a few molecules, uh, really easy to work with other than that. And that uh, those fuels are probably not going to be the solution for the, for the Artemis program because they don't have the same oomph. They don't have the same impulse and thrust that you can get from a cryogenic propellant. So we're probably going to move to cryogenic propellants at some point. And have to figure out how to... Gauge them more accurately. Uh, gauge them, transfer them, un- understand their dynamics. I mean, they, they self-pressurize. If you put a – anybody who's worked in a science lab knows if you put liquid nitrogen in a, in a tank and close it off, you have a bomb because it will <laughs> – the vapor pressure will grow and it will explode. So being able to monitor and contain and safely transfer those liquids in space is, is quite a challenge. Yeah. By the way, when – when there are, for instance, these flights with Blue Origin or whatever, uh, in which the these this MPG technology has been taken up, there have been other things taken up by other people developing other kinds of things, right? Absolutely, to yeah. be tested. Can you just give us a, at least a rough understanding of the kinds of things that go up on a flight like that? What kind of devices or what kind of new technologies uh, are are being observed? 
uh, in these in these flights. Yeah, it's really exciting. I, and and some of them are very exciting, but they also are very proprietary. So we can't you know look, point, touch, and so on um, uh, at some of the technologies. But the ones that that I, I am aware of over the years that have kind of intrigued me have been. I watched, for instance, the first um, human heart tissue being grown from a bioprinter, a 3D printer that uses bio ink to print stem cells. And oh. <laughs> there, there are advantages to doing that kind of, um, of uh, 3D tissue growing in space. Without the presence of gravity, you can remove some of the structural elements that you need in the early stages of, of these tissue developments. So it's a real promising direction for, for biomedical um, we've seen people who are part of uh, space nursing groups that are trying to figure out how to do transfusions or um, medical procedures that are trivial and easy on the surface of the earth, but in, with no gravity, liquids go everywhere. I mean, we didn't even know how, how blood moved in the heart and whether or not astronauts would survive their first 30 seconds of exposure to microgravity in the early 60s. Wow. And now we're starting to understand that, but we still don't know how to save lives. We still don't know how to administer... Um, medicines in space. It's wow. very difficult. And for something like Artemis, where we're talking about astronauts being in those settings or conditions for months on end, maybe years on end, uh, it really becomes absolutely essential to have the answers to yeah, these kind of yeah. questions. And I, I think the excitement of, of, a, of Blue Origin and other providers that are starting to lower the access barriers to space is that we're sort of in the era where we were with computers in the in the early 60s where they were nobody could foresee what a typical person could do with a device the size of a room that required the resources of a government to operate. And now, of course, they're in our pockets and they're everywhere. I think space access is, is just like that. We're just at the tip of the iceberg here in terms of seeing what creative ideas people have and what sorts of problems we can solve by having access to this third dimension. So it's, it's really exciting. And I think the, the most exciting thing I saw recently was that uh, Blue Origin had a, um, is very interested in the arts and had a competition to partner the, the band OK Go with people who might have ideas about how to combine art, music, and space. And so they flew these huh. very secretive payloads that contained something um, that we'll all, I think, we'll all eventually see the results of in a, in a few weeks when the flight footage is released. But um, I think the opportunities for the arts community are, are really probably as exciting as they are for the science and tech communities. Wow, I would not have expected you to say that. So wow, cool. Well, and it's just amazing to think about the way in which Carthage College and you and your students are a part of all of this. I mean, it well, just thank you. The, 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 the just thrilling on all kinds of of, of different levels. Uh, I wanted to spend our last couple of minutes talking about this momentous anniversary that was celebrated earlier this year, which, of course, was the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, when uh, human beings first walked on the moon. And, uh, of course, understandably so, it was an anniversary that garnered an enormous amount of, of attention. And uh, I wonder uh, what your thoughts were, um, and of course you were probably still in the closing months of your sabbatical as that celebration was was observed. I just wonder what your thoughts are about kind of the lessons of Apollo 11 and uh, what you want to make sure people understand about that accomplishment. Well, yeah, I had the enormous privilege and, and uh, just it was a wonderful opportunity to be 
at Kennedy Space Center during that uh, during that anniversary. In fact, I think I was also at Johnson for for part of it in Houston. So I was really at at the heart of where this effort um, took flight, and it did give me a lot of time to reflect on on what what the impact of that era was. And I, and I think it, I I hope that the main lesson of the Apollo era is that it is, there is nothing magic about the kind of inspiration and the kind of, of investment in education and the, the seven to one economic return on dollars invested in space. There's nothing magic about that particular era. We can do it again and we need to do it again. And the kinds of, of uh, inspiration to students and, and, people of all ages that Apollo provided in a really divisive time in the late 60s, as well as the long-term economic benefits of, of investing in solving hard problems. When you solve hard problems, um, you'll never know where those solutions are going to end up. And they've ended up in our pockets as cell phone cameras. They've ended up saving lives in, in neonatal intensive care units through field heart monitors that started as as uh, technologies to monitor astronaut biometrics in, in space. They've ended up everywhere. And that sort of investment requires, uh, uh, you know, requires society to say this this is important. We don't know where it's going, but it's important that we continue this this uh, this grand journey. So I hope that I hope that we have that that impulse again as a as a society for for Artemis. I'm reminded of um, watching a documentary about uh, the the first Apollo flight that orbited the moon. I forget now if that was eight or nine, but. Um, that they had footage of astronauts' wives watching the footage on television and just seeing the living room and seeing the furniture and seeing the TV with the rabbit ears mm. antenna on top of it. And you realize <laughs> that's the technology that got us to the moon. I exactly. Mean, it just seems right. like a little house on the prairie now. I mean, just so primitive compared to what we have now. So it right. feels like just thinking about what they accomplished with what they had on hand mm-hmm. uh, makes it all the more enormous an accomplishment and, and makes the, the thought of doing it again even more enticing, and especially if we can discover new things to benefit us in, in, in new ways. And here you are, uh, part of that that effort, you and, and your students. Dr. Kevin Crosby, uh, professor of physics and astronomy at Carthage, director of the Wisconsin Space Grant Consortium. I am so grateful for you uh, joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about all of this exciting work and wish you and your students only the very best as uh, as your work goes forward from here. And thanks again for being part of The Morning Show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.